Hello and welcome to this launch of the Australia Southeast Asia Relations and Post-COVID-19 Regional Order Policy Brief. My name is Beck Striding. I'm the Executive Director of La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. I would like to begin this webinar event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. Uh, although we are on Zoom, so I'd like to acknowledge the fact that our panellists are located on the lands of different uh, traditional custodians across Australia. So I would like to extend my respect to elders past and present uh, and to Indigenous Australians who are watching uh, this webinar uh, this afternoon. So part of our role at La Trobe Asia is to engage the public in meaningful discussion and debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the Asian region. And as part of this mission, La Trobe Asia produces a dedicated series of policy briefs that provide analysis and recommendations on topical issues concerning our region. The Australia Southeast Asia Relations and the Post-COVID-19 Regional Order Brief is the fifth policy brief that we have produced in this series. And it features 12 opinion pieces from experts from across Australia and Southeast Asia. These articles provide in-depth analysis on the state of Australia and Southeast Asian relations and recommendations for how these can be deepened uh, as the region enters into a phase of pandemic recovery. The publication is the result of a productive and positive collaboration between La Trobe Asia, Asia Centre in Bangkok, Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Indonesia, the Institute of Strategic and International Studies in Malaysia, Griffith Asia Institute, AsiaLink, Perth US Asia Centre and Generate Worldwide. This collaboration has been generously supported by the Australian ASEAN Council. So I am really delighted to be joined by four outstanding experts uh, to assist in launching uh, this brief. We were originally hoping to run this event face-to-face, -face, but as the COVID-19 situation has been unfavourable, shall we say, I am grateful uh, that four of our excellent Co our colleagues and collaborators have been able to join us through uh, the magic of Zoom. Uh, so first, we have Dr. Huang Latu, who is a senior analyst at the Defence and Strategy Program at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, uh, where she leads projects on Southeast Asia security and diplomacy. Uh, Huang is a great friend of Latrobe Asia's, and we are grateful for your contribution to the brief and for joining us tonight. Dr. Jeffrey Wilson is the Research Director at the Perth US Asia Centre. He specialises in the regional economic integration of the Indo-Pacific, specifically the politics of trade agreements, regional economic institutions and Australia's economic ties with Asia. Uh, Perth US Asia Centre, as I mentioned before, was one of our partners in this collaboration uh, and Jeff has contributed a piece to the policy brief. So it's great to have you here, Jeff, zooming in from Perth. Professor Caitlin Byrne is the Director of Griffith Asia Institute at Griffith University. 
Her research focuses on Australian diplomacy with a special interest in Australia's engagement within the Asia-Pacific region, including Southeast Asia. Uh, Griffith Asia Institute was also a key partner in this collaboration, uh, and Caitlin has also provided an article for our brief, so it's great to see you here to Caitlin coming in from Brisbane. And last but certainly not least is Chen Chen Li, who is an advisor diplomacy to AsiaLink at the University of Melbourne. She is also a senior fellow with the Singapore Institute of International Affairs. And we are grateful uh, that AsiaLink was also able to come on board uh, with this partnership. Uh, and Chen has contributed a piece on Australia-Singapore relations to the brief. So welcome, Chen. There will be time for Q&A in the second half uh, of the webinar for which we will be using the Q&A function. So please feel free to put your questions into the Q&A box as we go along and I'll get to them uh, after our panellists have had an opportunity to share um, some thoughts on Australia-Southeast Asia relations. But I am going to start uh, by asking Huang a question about uh, the key security trends in Southeast Asia. I mean, what is changing geopolitically and what effect has COVID-19 had on regional security in Southeast Asia? Thank you, Beck. It's really good to be with you and to share the panel with my great friends. And um, hello to some of the familiar faces uh, in the audience as well. Some of them also contributed to the report, so it's good to see such a great audience. Um, thank you for this question. I think at the time when we wrote the report and now, um, some things have changed a little bit. Well, the fact that we can't get together and do it physically is one thing, and it's a constant actually reminder that this pandemic and virus is, is not going away anytime soon. It's, it's a forever um, virus and it's affecting us uh, in every possible way and it's not going to stop anytime soon. This is a strategist um, response, so uh, a warning that it's going to be a little bit pessimistic because I, I worry a lot about the region. At the time of writing, I thought um, there's a lot of uh, optimism in how Southeast Asia dealt with the virus, with the pandemic in previous year. And there's a lot of faith in the region's resilience. Um, so in, in while macro trends, that geopolitical trends would disrupt and challenge the region, I thought um, you know, the prospect of the region recovering soon or going to the recovery phase would, uh, it's, it's a, in a foreseeable future. And most of economic projections actually also um, expect a fast V-shaped uh, kind of uh, recovery, uh, at least in many of Southeast Asian countries. But as we speak now, I think in the recent weeks and months, the Delta variant is really stressing the whole region. And um, I think the prospect of fast recovery is probably uh, too premature. I do worry about uh, region's resilience not because the region is not resilient uh, in a way, but um, I think you know, a prolonged effect of pandemic is, is hard on everyone. And the pandemic has affected Southeast Asia in a very different way. So first year, I think um, by and large in global scale, Southeast Asia was doing very well relatively well, of course, the Philippines and Indonesia had uh, struggled more than the rest. 
but at the moment, I think we are seeing uh, across the region, even countries that dealt with the virus well, like Vietnam and Thailand, um, are struggling because we are now not just in the face of uh, how good is governance or how effective is governance in containing the spread, but we really are in the face of recovery and um, vaccine rollout. And this is where the uh, great powers also come into play, right? Just before pandemic, we already had experienced the region very nervous about great power competition, the decoupling, and the great raising attention around the region uh, related to great power activities. Now, um, pandemic has also become another vector of competition with different vaccine rollouts. Uh, we don't know how exactly the region will look like in terms of vaccine distribution, but already now there are certain trends that shows that perhaps we'll have very different zones of vaccines, right? Different uh, contributors, different providers. And diplomacy, vaccine diplomacy had played a serious role so far. Uh, we've seen China very active in Cambodia, Philippines, Indonesia, for example, less so, for example, in, in Vietnam. Uh, and, and Singapore. I think at the moment, as we speak, Singapore is the only country that have uh, quite, uh, you know, uh, ranks well in uh, recovery resiliency in the top 50 countries, uh, in top 20 something countries, according to the, the recent uh, Nikkei ranking. The rest, including uh, Thailand and Vietnam, as I mentioned, and even Taiwan, which is not considered Southeast Asia, are really uh, falling behind. And um, that has uh, to do with both, you know, um, how fast and effective they were to secure the vaccine in the supply chain, their diplomatic efforts. But also what I worry most is there will be a divide between the, the haves and the haves nots. And again, this is, um, you know, a very versatile ground and very vulnerable uh, place for the countries to be if we're talking about the great power competitions, right? And um, how um, countries that would utilize vaccine diplomacy uh, for gaining influence um, uh, and uh, in the region. So in a way, I think um, to come back to your question, pandemic um, in the beginning, I think there are a lot of conclusions that pandemic didn't change uh, the order, it only accelerated in the pre-existing pre trend. I think from the beginning, I took a little bit different point of view. I thought, yes, it accelerates some, but also slowed down others. So it's very uneven um, effect on different countries and different aspects. So it accelerated competition, but it slowed down uh, countries' ability to react uh, in many ways because it's so absorbing uh, it is taking over the state capacities in many ways. Right now, if you have um, strategic uh, conversations about strategic issues with many countries in the region, that would not be their first priority for many of them. So some of them, yes, um, for example, Vietnam. But for many of, of uh, my uh, interlocutors in the region, the first and the foremost concern and focus will be vaccines and will be recovery and will be dealing with the pandemic. The great power competition conversation is, is um, you know, gradually taking a back burner uh, uh, side because uh, everyone now is focusing on this, um, uh, on this Delta virus uh, um, uh, outbreak. So I think the virus will continue to stress 
the systems, the governance, and economic capacity of all countries in the region. They have different resilience in terms of both, you know, governance and, and economic capacities to recover. So we are still in a very phase of, you know, the pandemic uh, unfolding. It's not yet um, any conclusion coming out of that, except for the thing that it will absorb uh, countries' um, capacity. And in many ways, um, you know, geopolitical trends are not uh, waiting for anyone. Uh, China is uh, absolutely still um, you know, advancing its own interests in the region. And so it, it, it is, uh, at the moment, I think uh, one of the most dangerous in, impact of it is, is taking away and it's absorbing the capacity to deal with many um, concurrent issues uh, that is happening. So I don't want to take too much of the time, but I'll stop here and happy to engage uh, in, in further questions. Uh, thank you, Huang. We might get back uh, a little bit later, maybe in the Q&A section, to um, some of the points that you raised about great power competition uh, and, um, you know, how uh, COVID is, is sort of another vector of great power competition. Uh, but I would just like to, to follow up. I mean, the policy brief is really on Australia-Southeast uh, Asia relations, and you've painted, I guess, a bit of a grim picture about uh, just how... Um, slow the, the recovery phase uh, might actually be and some of those challenges around regional resilience. Uh, but I'm wondering, is this going to, I mean, is, is it going to be more difficult uh, now for Australia and Southeast Asian states to cooperate or does the situation actually provide some opportunities for deepening cooperation? Uh, and I would also uh, note that your contribution to our brief um, looked at Australia-Vietnam in particular. So I'm wondering whether you can kind of comment on whether um, this uh, regional security situation that's been so affected by COVID-19 might actually, uh, whether it limits or whether it actually provides opportunities for deepening bilateral cooperation between Australia and Southeast Asian states. I think Australia has been quite active uh, in recent years and uh, also during pandemic. I think Australia is one of the countries that have had a, you know, active, at least that's how it's seen from the region, um, a relatively active strategy of providing vaccines and engaging um, with the region in terms of recovery. We've seen uh, Prime Minister Scott Morrison uh, committing, you know, over $500 million in the East Asia Summit late last year. Australia was very early to co commit, um, pledge to uh, Gavi and uh, is committing to vaccine partnership with, um, through a Quad partnership, through G7 um, and so on and so forth. So Australia is recognizing that this is a very critical moment for the region and wants to be a, a dependable and reliable partners and um, uh, contribute to the vaccine. Scenes. And I think that's a, that's a good recognition. But also, um, there are a few complicating factors, including you know Australia also has to has its own vaccine rollout, um, you know, organized before really effectively doing that abroad. Um, I'm not vaccinated for that matter, for example. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, there will be complicating factors as well with lack of um, direct communication 
visits, right? We have Prime Minister Scott Morrison visiting Singapore on the way to G7, right? We haven't had really, you know, high-level visits for, for a while now, of course. Um, um, virtual meetings are happening still, but, you know, there are, uh, the fact that Australia wants to keep closed borders for some time will be a complicating factor uh, as well in, in a little bit midterm uh, uh, you know, over the, this period of time. So there are different answers to your question whether we took, uh, we're looking at you know, short-term immediate responses or long-term. I think in long-term there are plenty of issues that hopefully Australia will keep engaging with the region. And um, uh, just because you know, it, it's our day, direct neighborhood. I feel, I still feel like every time talking about Southeast Asia, I still have to add a word um, on our doorstep as if, you know, it, it needs to be reminded, otherwise it doesn't matter as much. So there is that, you know, gap as well. Um, but there are, there are plenty of, um, you know, areas for cooperation for Australia and Southeast Asia in the long term. In the short and middle term, middle term is, of course, response to vaccines, response to pandemic vaccine rollout and, and uh, keeping the engagement and dialogue despite the different, uh, despite the, the distance and um, lack of physical contact. I'm not vaccinated either uh, due to one of the disadvantages of uh, age, I suppose. Uh, but, Jeff, uh, I might turn to you. Uh, how is geoeconomics shaping uh, regional trends in Southeast Asia? Oh, thanks very much, Beck. And I'm pleased to announce I will be Pfizer tomorrow, despite being just under 40 years old. Thank you to the Governor of West Australia for bringing that down. Uh, look, um, so, so despite that personal anecdote, um, look, what I wanted to talk about was how geoeconomics has really become a fact of life strategically, politically and economically in, in Southeast Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific region. And what we've seen in recent years is the level of international rivalry between major powers has really stepped up again. A number of governments have turned to using economic tools to advance strategic agendas. Uh, this is particularly true of both the US and China, which have each used geoeconomic strategies to prosecute their great power rivalry, both between each other and in their dealings with third parties. And as a result of all of this, we've seen a number of geoeconomic battlegrounds emerging in the Indo-Pacific in recent region years. Um, these include things I'm sure we're all familiar with these from reading the newspaper, um, stuff like trade warfare, um, particularly the massive US-China trade war that has seen tariffs applied to $700 billion of global trade, um, infrastructure races catalyzed by China's Belt and Road Initiative and other competing infrastructure proposals that have come up against that. Um, we've also seen institutional competition between different free trade blocks, such as the TPP and RCEP. Um, and indeed, as Huang talks about, we're also in the last couple of years, uh, months, seeing vaccine diplomacies and other fronts as well. Now, I'd argue that these forms of geoeconomic competition are a really serious threat to the national interests of both Australia and Southeast Asian economies. Um, the reason is that we're all either small or medium-sized economies, and lack the size and scale and heft to engage in a geoeconomic battle with a great power like the US or China on our own. Um, Australia and Southeast Asia are all very open economies with very high intensity to foreign investment and trade. And so this means that any interruptions or distortions to our trade investment relations caused by geopolitics 
have an outsized effect on our economies that are much larger than you'd see in other economies around the world. Um, and I think the challenge has also been compounded because until now, both Southeast Asia and Australia have tried to respond and in some cases defend against some of these geoeconomic threats, largely individually and unilaterally. So when there's been complex rivalries over competing infrastructure proposals, Southeast Asian countries have largely tried to manage their investment ties with China and Japan and others individually. When we've seen the use of coercive trade sanctions from China, um, which in the last decade has been experienced by Vietnam, the Philippines and Australia at various times, we respond to that bilaterally alone. Um, and when global institutions like the WTO start to break down, in the WTO's case, due to American vetoes, um, we make individual but pretty largely ineffective representations for the need for a rules-based economic order. Um, and so I think the core problem facing both Southeast Asia and Australia at the moment is that these individual responses are unlikely to unscramble the egg. Um, a medium-sized economy, say in Australia or in Indonesia or Malaysia, simply doesn't have the capability to push back against geoeconomic plays by a great power. And then if we turn our attention to some of the smaller developing country members of ASEAN, they've got almost none. And so I think what this means is that at the moment, geoeconomics has both become one of the major battlegrounds driving the strategic game in Southeast Asia, but equally that the individual responses we've taken aren't really working and are failing to deliver the response that both Southeast Asia and Australia needs. I think you've hit on one of the kind of the key issues here. Uh, in the Australian uh, context, we talk uh, quite a lot about things like trade diversification, uh, and that has a lot of support. We know from uh, the Lowy Institute polling that uh, the idea of diversifying our economy away from China uh, is, is quite popular. Uh, and, and you've sort of talked about the fact that individual responses from states are inadequate. So I guess the real question is, how can Australia uh, and Southeast Asia states and, and even states outside of this region cooperate in the economic realm? How can they do things multilaterally rather than individually to try and defend whether it's shared interests or whether it's a shared economic rules-based order? You mentioned the, the World Trade Organization or whether it's trying to counter adverse geoeconomic tactics of um, states such as China. How can, how can these, what, what's stopping these states from, from, uh, from countering uh, adverse economic, uh, geoeconomic strategies, um, working together to counter these tactics? I think it almost requires us to change the way we think around Australia-Southeast Asia economic relations, which for a long time has, has been a kind of trade investment promotion agenda. How can, how can we sell each other more stuff and how can we invest in each other more? So it's even then has been quite bilateral. And, and given we've got this shared interest in protecting rules-based economic interactions in the face of these geoeconomic challenges, that we possibly need to start making this part of the Australia-Southeast Asia shared agenda as well. Um, and there's one really good example that we've already begun moving in this direction, um, and that's the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, agreement, which was signed in November last year. Um, it, while it hasn't attracted a lot of t attention, it's a critical and probably our best plank in the defence of a regional rules-based economic system. Um, if you measure it by GDP, RCEP's the largest regional trade agreement ever signed 
Um, in fact, it's the second largest trade agreement behind the WTO itself. And it establishes an integrated trade block amongst all the major economies in the Indo-Pacific. Um, this is a serious achievement because it's been delivered amidst a growing wave of protectionism globally um, and, of course, the ravages of the COVID pandemic. Um, so to see this agreement get signed last year and uh, midwifed by Vietnam, of all countries, through the ASEAN summit season in November is a really landmark achievement. And it also demonstrates the, the possibility and utility of using these multilateral strategies for economic cooperation. Um, contrary to some views, RCEP is not a China-led trade bloc. Um, indeed, it's an ASEAN-centred trade agreement. And the rules and provisions in the agreement specifically reflect the economic and developmental needs of Southeast Asian economies. Um, the fact that it also includes Japan, Korea, Australia and New Zealand ensures that all the major economies in the region are present. So we've got everyone, including China, all agreeing to the same set of rules. I think this is really significant. Um, but there's probably a lot more we could do. And one I'd just pick off really quickly would be the global trade architecture where the WTO is facing several major crises. Um, I won't bog our seminar up with a whole lot of WTO like trade legalese this afternoon, um, but it's fair to say that neither Australia or any ASEAN country has the individual heft to really change what's going on in Geneva on our own. Um, but if we could coordinate that contribution, we'd be able to make a significantly greater result in terms of those global discussions about getting the WTO working again. Um, so that would be something where uh, that coordination would be a force multiplier for Australia and Southeast Asian governments in our ability to project our interests and views into global fora like the WTO. Thank you. Well, uh, both Jeff and Hong mentioned vaccine diplomacy. Uh, so, Caitlin, I was hoping uh, that you might talk a little bit about vaccine diplomacy and also the, the other term that gets used, vaccine nationalism. Uh, how is how are these vaccine diplomacy, vaccine nationalism dynamics playing out in Southeast Asia? Thanks, Beck, and thank you again for inviting us all here tonight. Um, I'm joining you from the Turrbal and Jagera lands uh, up here in, in Brisbane, and it's really a pleasure to be catching up with those here in the panel, but also a shout out to all of those in the audience. Great to see so many familiar names. Um, so yeah, Beck, you've mentioned this idea of vaccine nationalism. And I think since the, the, the outbreak of the pandemic, we have heard quite a few warning calls, particularly from the WHO, but from other organizations about the role that vaccine nationalism could play and that really relates to the idea of governments pushing hard to get first access to the supply of vaccines, potentially to hoard key components for vaccine production, and also use vaccines uh, in, in the great diplomatic game for, for their own strategic purposes. So I think we've seen this play out, uh, and, and in particular in Southeast Asia. And, it, and it's, it is a problem um, because it can have some really serious negative consequences on how well the global pandemic is managed and contained across the region. Um, typically, we've seen those you know, Western, rich Western nations are the ones buying up vaccine doses. In some cases, you know, and, and I think it's, it's important to make the point that, of course, people do expect their governments to be looking after them. Um, so to a certain degree, you can understand this. But we're seeing nations that are buying up doses in an order of magnitude that well outstrips the need of the population. Um, 
while other countries have limited access or no means for access to a vaccine supply. And this isn't anything new. We've seen this kind of my country first approach on a whole range of issues, but we've seen it before in terms of pandemics, in particular um, when countries were scrambling to secure swine flu vaccinations in 2009. The outcomes then and the outcomes that, that potentially will play out today relate to the uneven distribution of vaccines based on purchasing power rather than a coordinated needs-based approach. And, and that's an issue. So there's been some research undertaken in particular by the RAND uh, Europe Corporation, and they've done this in collaboration with the Gavi Alliance that sits behind the COVAX mechanism. And they've really discovered that this kind of unequal allocation of COVID-19 vaccines is going to cost us. It's going to cost us potentially in human terms, well, definitely in human terms, because we're not going to see people who need to be vaccinated um, actually receive the vaccinations they need. But we're also going to see a cost in economic terms. And this is particularly the case when we are not going to uh, any of us be in a better place in terms of recovery from the virus until we are all vaccinated. So potentially the cost of that unequal allocation of vaccines is going to be up to about 1.2 trillion a year in GDP terms. So I think, um, you know, it's really important to think about the impact of of vaccine national vaccine nationalism, but also how that plays into the, the diplomatic game and how states are seeking to gain strategic leverage through the supply of vaccines, whether it's done through preferential deals, whether it's gifting, whether it's um, deals based on human trials in different countries, and we've seen that at play as well. You know, there are some, these are not necessarily deals that are done on the basis of mutual benefit or reciprocity. And I think we've got to be really careful in critiquing and challenging the way that vaccine nationalism plays into these multiple dimensions um, of how we're actually working across the globe to respond and recover from the virus. Well, just on that issue of, you know, how states might be able to coordinate rather than focusing just on their own individual national interests, uh, it was mentioned uh, before that Australia's uh, vaccine rollout has um, faced some uh, challenges, uh, but how have Australia and Southeast Asian states been cooperating on vaccine delivery or distribution or the rollout? Has there been uh, much coordination or cooperation in this area and can more be done? Yeah, uh, look, and I think there's always more to be done, but I think Australia certainly stepped up its response uh, across the region, um, firstly in rhetoric and, and talking about the fact that it needed to respond to the region. Of course, that has been directed uh, first and foremost to our Pacific neighbourhood, but also reaching across and into Southeast Asia. Uh, and we're seeing such uneven, uh, uneven numbers. You know, in some cases in Indonesia, the daily rates are really incredibly high. Also in Malaysia, uh, Thailand per, per million people of population. In other countries, we're not seeing the same kinds of rates. Um, but of course, again, reporting is an issue. But Australia certainly has stepped up its rhetoric and its response uh, across the region. I think that's been quite an important part of Australia's own 
diplomatic engagement with the region, and it is about demonstrating that we are, I think, as Wang has already mentioned, a partner of choice in the region, and we're doing this at a time of significant, as Jeff's already mentioned, geostrategic and geoeconomic competition. So it's important that we are um, involved diplomatically in this space. Um, Australia's already committed 500 million to support access across the region to safe and effective vaccines. And the rhetoric talks quite a bit about wraparound support. So this is not just about vaccine delivery, but it's about the kind of technical and medical support that goes with that. And that's, that's really important. Um, there have been a range of other measures, including 21 million to fund an ASEAN centre for public health emergencies and emerging diseases, uh, as well as ongoing bilateral programs. And I think this is important as well for Southeast Asia that has typically worked quite well and in a coordinated way. They've got experience in dealing with pandemics from previous experiences. So it is important to really support and keep building on the policy initiatives that have been in place um, for some time. So Australia has been working and, and thinking about the region. We've also seen Australia make some announcements through other arrangements, including the Quad, as Wong had already mentioned, 100 million there to support uh, a, a quad initiative. Now, I think we're going to have to watch that and in particular watch how India is able to continue to play a role in the in, in that particular initiative. That's not for, for sure, given India's own positioning right now um, with, with the virus. The other thing is that Morrison, Prime Minister Morrison at the recent G7 meeting made a commitment to um, the G7 initiative to contribute 20 million new COVID-19 vaccine doses that will go to the region. So we're seeing a range of, of partnerships and initiatives bilaterally in minilateral groupings. And of course, Australia is also a contributor to that COVAX mechanism, uh, providing, I think it's uh, 130 million into that COVAX that COVAX mechanism. That's going to play a really important role for a number of countries in the region. Six ASEAN member countries are involved in that COVAX rollout as well, if you include uh, Timor-Leste in the Southeast Asian picture as well. So that brings it to seven. So, so there are multiple um, avenues for supporting the region. And that's really important as we think about recovery. But of course, COVID-19 casts a long shadow. And I think thinking just beyond the, the development and distribution of vaccines to much deeper economic um, support that is going to go on for time will be really important from an Australian perspective and thinking about Australia's partnership in the region. It's also probably worth just making the point that in the recent Lowy uh, poll on Australia's views of the world, Generally speaking, Australians are really supportive of Australia's development assistance, particularly through the vaccine program, through both Southeast Asia and the Pacific. I think 80% of Australians see uh, our support of Pacific Island nations through vaccine distribution as being really important and 60% plus for Southeast Asia. Now that's a really important sign of domestic support for these kinds of programs and I think we need to build on that. Yeah, that's a really interesting um, stat. I'm glad that you raised that one, Caitlin. And maybe uh, in the Q&A, we might get back to some of the, the sort of functional issues about um, what, uh, what 
having a kind of fortress Australia mentality might also mean for our diplomatic uh, relations and engagements. Uh, but Chen, I wanted to bring you into the conversation uh, because uh, you've written a piece for the policy brief that talks about the Singaporean-Australia bilateral relationship. And, you know, perhaps this is one that we don't spend a lot of time or enough time considering. So uh, what shared interests do Australia and Singapore have uh, as the regional order continues to evolve? Well, thank you very much, Bag. It's great to be here to see so many familiar faces. And thank you for um, this great partnership that AsiaLink has always had with Latrobe Asia. So um, Singapore and Australia share a very deep and multifaceted relationship. Um, if anyone has, has been a Singapore Australia watcher, you would know this just based on the fact that, you know, the both countries have have a comprehensive strategic partnership that's halfway through and anchor on five critical pillars, defense, um, economics, trade, people to people, just being a few of them. And um, there's strong trade relations between the two countries, not to mention people to people linkages. And Australia is actually the primary destination for a lot of Singaporeans, um, students who are seeking higher education. So the current border closure of Australia is actually affecting Singapore in more ways than you can imagine at a personal level. Um, and it has withstood the test of COVID because um, when, when there were a lot of border closures, air freight between the two countries did not, did not stop at all. In fact, I was told that it took about a week to convert the passenger flights into cargo flights. So I think it does send you send a really strong signal that relations are really important. Um, and therefore, you know, it, it, it didn't take long to basically do something that it's really to transform something that into something that's really pragmatic, despite border closures. And I think this relationship, this strong relationship between the two countries was really affirmed um, in June between uh, the meeting between Morrison and Lee Sin Long in Singapore um, when Morrison was en route to the G7 meeting in Cornwall. And they, of course, discussed the travel bubble. And again, if you follow the news of Australia's travel bubble, Singapore is the only other country that Australia is considering a travel bubble apart from New Zealand. Again, it tells you a lot about trust that uh, is embedded in the mindset of both leaders, both countries for a very long time. Now. Um, both countries obviously share a lot in common um, when it comes to the regional order. And um, there is a lot of respect, and I think for rule of law and, and, and for a very open multilateral trading system. And I think Jeff also mentioned that, that as a result of that, both countries are also extremely exposed to what's happening between US and China, particularly the trade war as well. Um, both countries also have a shared interest in seeing sustained U.S. engagement and presence in the Indo-Pacific. So, um, and I know there's been a lot of talk in the last few years under the Trump administration where U.S. was seen as retreating. And uh, I will let you know that that, that was something that, was, uh, that really struck concerns amongst Singaporean policymakers and scholars and academics because like Australia, Singapore also has a strong security arrangement with the US as well. And both countries also have a shared interest in regional peace and stability. Um, it seems like um, 
it seems like something really obvious to say, to say but it, it is really what this, this sort of um, desire to see regional peace and stability is also a reason why Singapore um, is such a strong supporter of ASEAN as a keynote um, in the regional architecture, as a key convener and facilitator of great power conversations as well. And, um, and I guess um, sort of the other aspect that both countries share is perception of common threat, threats in the region. And I'm talking about things such as the rise of um, um, fundamental Islamism, terrorism related to that, cyber terrorism, and also freedoms, uh, sorry, concerns about freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Um, and in that regard, Singapore and Australia have a lot of defense cooperation along those lines as well, because it is because they have the shared view of what these threats are, and therefore there's a lot of deep cooperation to try to counter those threats. And I guess last but not least, um, I like to think of Singapore and, and Australia as sort of really like-minded partners who have this common strategic view of the region. They're both middle-sized powers, even though Singapore, by virtue of its size, is considered a small country, but by virtue of you know its financial health as well as strategic relationship with countries that well, I would consider a middle-sized country in that regard. And, and that with both countries that are not without agency when it comes to navigating a much more contested Indo-Pacific region. And also, you know, mentioning uh, and also managing these great power relations. So I think in that regard, it is a relationship that I see um, has withstood the test of time and has withstood we stood uh, the test of COVID as well, and hopefully, um, and hopefully, it should you know progress sort of on the same trajectory in the next few years. Well, that's what I was um, hoping to press you on a little bit further. But before I ask my next question, just a reminder, uh, please put your questions in the Q&A box. Uh, we will be getting to Q&A shortly. I see there's already one in there from Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Uh, but I did want to ask Chen uh, a follow-up question. I'm glad that you mentioned the travel bubble uh, with Singapore because I'm sure I'm not the only one here who would really like to see that uh, <laughs> implemented. <laughs> uh, but just on the this kind of idea of, of the trajectory, I guess, of Australia-Singapore relations, has the uh, pandemic provided greater impetus for Australia and Singapore to work more closely together, aside, you know, putting aside, the, the of course, the travel bubble with your, which you've already mentioned? Uh, but, you know, how can bilateral ties, I guess, be developed or strengthened in the future, in your view? Well, I think there are opportunities for deepening of the bilateral relations, and I would just highlight two particular areas. One is, a, one is related to climate change, and that was already mentioned any, in any case by both leaders when they met. Uh, but what I'm looking at, it's really seeing COVID as the great reset for sustainable and inclusive economic recovery. This is not a nice to have to have thing. It is almost critical um, because the region is so prone to natural disasters. And if we and there is there is even pre-COVID, there was a realization amongst most Southeast Asian nations that if they do not switch to a low carbon economic growth in the next 10 or 20 years, um, the, the countries are going to suffer. So that shift 
towards sustainable um, development was already on track before COVID. But I think COVID as the great reset provides that opportunity for governments, policymakers and businesses to really rethink the way in which business should be conducted or government running should be conducted in the future. And in that regard, I think there is potential for Australia and Singapore to work in this respect. And Singapore is sort of the, for, the, for, the front runner amongst Southeast Asian countries when it comes to this area. Um, in the last sort of one year or so, the government, um, the Singapore government, well, I like to think that they're usually quite visionary in the way they think. Um, so in the midst of COVID, they saw it as an opportunity to announce a green, a Singapore Green Plan 2030, which is an all-encompassing plan as to how the nation as a whole can start to become a much more greener city-state. City and then um, Tomasek, which is the country's sovereign wealth fund, also announced that climate change is going to be its, the biggest consideration of its investment strategy moving forward. And I know that Tomasek has invested in Australian companies here, but I'm not sure how big the portfolio is, but it invests in companies all over the world. So that's going to signal a shift in the way companies globally would think as well. And then, of course, um, one area which I want to mention, which is sort of what Jeff was talking about when it comes to geoeconomics as well, is um, infrastructure fi financing. Um, I think there is, um, we, we spoke about multilateralizing infrastructure funding. And um, along with that, the important part is it has to be sustainable infrastructure. And, um, and in that respect, this is an area where I think Australia can also work very much with Singapore in pushing for the multilateralizing of infrastructure funding, but also much more sustainable infrastructure development. And it's sort of already happening. Singapore set up the Infrastructure Asia office several years ago as a way to ensure that infrastructure projects in the region become much more bankable and that it's leveraging on private sector fi financing as well, which provides a bit of a counteract to, 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 the, to, the, to China's BRI, even though it was a proposition in this way, but it was a way to ensure that the region has the funding, funding that it needs. And you would know that Australia also has set up the Blue Dot Network together with Japan as well. Um, and, and, and I think in that regard, Australia is also trying to counteract geoeconomics, uh, uh, if, you, if you like to call it, um, in the infrastructure space. And the infrastructure space is very much related to inclusive economic recovery, just because it is such a critical aspect of economic development in the region, particularly in a country such as Indonesia, which we all know is such a critical partner of Australia in that regard. So that's one area where I think there's potential for deepening of bilateral relations between Australia and Singapore. The other area that I'd like to highlight is, of course, is in the digital economy space. Again, the digital economy space is something that already both leaders of, uh, leaders of both states have sort of um, committed to it through the Australia-Singapore Digital Economy Agreement 2020. And what it does, obviously, is enable interoperability you know, between the digital systems such as e-payments or fintech, cross-border data flows, et cetera. And I think, again, Singapore is, um, is, is, a, good, is a good regional hub for, to work with Australia 
in um, really capitalizing on this explosion of the digital economy in Southeast Asia, which Google has anticipated is worth more than 200 billion by 2025. And, and in the post-COVID context, the digital economy can be seen as a crucial part to accelerate economic recovery, but also in a sense, it's really it's already um, stimulating the economy, economy in ways such as it's enabling small and medium-sized entrepreneurs who previously couldn't tap into the global market to now have access to a much more global market um, through technologies, through apps. And there's a lot of examples of this in the case of um, Indonesia, for instance, Bukalapa, homegrown tech company, which uses really simple apps but it enables your mom and, um, mom and pop store in remote archipelago um, Indonesia to be able to sell their goods, really simple stuff to anybody through a simple app like that. And the company has grown so much in the last few years. But what I'm saying is that th that is a space which is just going to become even bigger as a result of COVID. And I think Australia has a lot you know, to bring to this space. And Singapore being the regional hub for a lot of regional tech companies and global companies, such as Google, um, um, Netflix, um, Facebook, and then your regional companies like Grab, Lazada, can be you know, the perfect partner for Australia in work working together in this regard. That's really interesting. I mean, you've offered some really concrete examples, I think, of how um, Singapore and Australia uh, can cooperate and engage, uh, particularly in the economic realm. Uh, but we are now at Q&A and we have Kyle Springer uh, has a question. Uh, your colleague there, Jeff, at the Perth US Asia Centre. And now I might give all of our panellists an opportunity uh, to uh, have a go at this question, and it is what lessons have we learned for the next pandemic? I think this is a really excellent question. What kind of architecture does Australia and Southeast Asia need in place uh, to prepare and better manage uh, the next one? I am going to add my own question onto that one as well before I uh, take it back to our panellists, and that is uh, thinking about Australia's relationship with ASEAN as an institution and whether our panellists have any insights on uh, how Australia relates with ASEAN as an institution and, and what kind of um, they might do uh, better in that regard. Uh, so I might start with um, Huang. We might go around in the order in which you spoke originally. So Huang, you want to have a go at that one? All right. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, Kyle. I think, um, yeah, it's a tricky question because in a way, ASEAN countries have had their mechanism about the pandemic and communicable diseases uh, for a long, long time. And as you know, some of our panelists mentioned, um, epidemics and pandemics are not new to the region. They have gone through several cases before, not to this COVID, but still that wasn't enough. It wasn't you know, a, a mechanism to draw upon or you know, at the beginning you saw coordination among ASEAN themselves as rather protracted. So um, even though they've had this kind of consultations and mechanism in place, so it's, it's not that easy to um, to have you know a ready template to go. I would say though that um, a lesson could be learned is that I think 
from the beginning and from what I remember in the media coverage in Australia in early days when the pandemic uh, first you know, uh, happened in China and um, in, in neighboring Southeast Asian countries, reporting in Australia was still uh, treating the matter as something that would stop in Asia, Asia, you know, another epidemic. Um, and when it hit here, I think there was, uh, you know, an overall shock and, and, you know, a little bit of what to do now, uh, instead of, you know, we had several months to really prepare for that. So I think that is the first lesson, lesson to, to, to have that, you know, it, it, pandemic won't stop at certain borders, they will go uh, ahead. And that would be also a matter for Australia to deal with as much as it was for other uh, Asian countries. So that's the first uh, lesson. I think uh, Australia is, um, Caitlin mentioned that too, that is uh, contributing to ASEAN mechanism um, and funds that would help in, you know, um, uh, disaster responses and public health responses, a number of um, initiatives that's happening. Uh, so that would not, uh, hopefully that would just not um, contribute to ASEAN only, but also that would include Australia as a partner. Australia has uh, last year elevated its, uh, what it would what was biannual um, uh, summits to annual. So that's another uh, vehicle, another uh, avenue to step up and have more frequent consultations. Um, and, and I think something that uh, we as a bigger region, whether just Southeast Asia or broader Asia and in Asia Pacific, um, have to uh, still work uh, uh, on is, is how do we treat that? Um, how do we recognize this? vaccines because we have different uh, vaccines now all over the, uh, the region. We have Sinovac, Sinopharm, uh, Sputnik V and you know all Moderna, Pfizer and AstraZeneca. How are they inter-recognized? Are they inter-recognized? Are uh, certain countries going to open borders for the, for the uh, you know, uh, people who have ABC vaccines, right? Or uh, what kind of rules on the um, uh, quarantine would be? You know, what kind of uh, a criteria for travel bubble to reopen or even business uh, communities to reopen? We don't have those standards in place and certainly not unified, not harmonized standards is something we still have to work on uh, quite seriously because we don't want to end up in a region that is, uh, you know, zoned by vaccines rollout and types of vaccines that are um, uh, that are being distributed. Yeah, it's a really important point. Uh, Jeff, would you like to have a go at this question? Uh, and, and let me assure everyone that I didn't put Kyle up to asking this question. Um, now, look, the, the part of the question, and taking on from Hong there, is like, does Australia have, and Southeast Asia or ASEAN, have the right architecture in place? Look, we can argue about whether we did before, but my great fear is that we increasingly have gone backwards over the last 12 to 18 months. A um, couple of reasons for that. I mean, the first one's the pandemic itself. Diplomacy is inhibited by people moving across borders. Even the Australian Prime Minister has to do two weeks in quarantine after going to the G7 summit. Um, and so it's really, you know, our, our, our officials are putting their bodies on the line physically to engage in diplomacy and the intensity of that's really reduced. 
Um, particularly if you look around Southeast Asia, then what's the agenda space in Southeast Asia at the moment? It's COVID, 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 and the ASEAN level, which we've talked about as well, Myanmar crisis. And on both of those fronts, look, Australia can kind of run the right direction, but Australia doesn't have a, a, you know, a decisive or determinative contribution to make on either of those fronts unless we can start producing tens of millions of vaccines a week, which we can't. Um, and the third one as well is the geopolitical competition overlay that's come in in the last 12 months. Australia's got a China problem. Lots of countries have a China problem. Lots of countries have an America problem. And that has seen, there's no question, there's been a refocus of Australia's diplomacy on buttressing key great power relationships, big pushes with the US and the Biden administration coming in, which is a great relief, but you've got to do that. Japan, India, and the G7 summits as well. And, and so my fear in talking about all these great ideas we've got in the agenda here is because of those three factors, the, the space for Australia, Southeast Asia or Australia ASEAN as the body has just collapsed to a very narrow space. Um, and there's not the people, we, we don't have the issues and we're all looking elsewhere at the moment. Um, I think that means that if whether or not we had it two years ago, we've got even less of it now. And, and it's very unclear to me what the path in in the next 12 months would be to put that back together apologies for pessimism maybe my fellow panelists will have a, a more more optimistic view well caitlin what do you think is there an issue of uh, bandwidth when it comes to australia southeast asia relations it's so fascinating and and i would agree with both uh huang and jeff in their kind of assessment i think we're seeing these big strategic issues and fault lines exposed and amplified by COVID-19. And yet, you know, our policy landscape has in some ways become more myopic in part because we simply can't engage in the way that we used to. We are forced onto these little screens. And, and so maintaining relationships, thinking about those big strategic issues is, is just almost beyond the capacity of many of us, you know, across policy domains. You know, even as we try to think in a more integrated approach to our policy landscape, it's becoming harder. It's becoming harder to coordinate inside our own borders, uh, let alone across and with. Um, I, I would like to come back to what we might have learned, though, in, in, in thinking about the pandemic and in thinking in particular about Southeast Asia, because I think some of these learnings have been there before uh, because of previous experiences. And we need to remind ourselves about this. And if I can make a shout out uh, for my colleague, Professor Sarah Davies wrote a brilliant book uh, containing contagion and the politics of disease outbreak in Southeast Asia. You know, she, she didn't, um, whilst she did talk about the fact that pandemics were going to increasingly become a feature of life in the global community, she certainly didn't time the release of her book to coincide with COVID, but it happened to. And I think if you go back through some of the learnings that Sarah has identified by looking at different uh, disease outbreaks in the region, you can see that we haven't, we've had some lessons right in front of us around things like, you know, how we implement the international health regulations that have been adopted and updated by the WHO and adopted specifically with, for a Southeast Asian context through the Asia Pacific strategy for emerging infectious diseases. So we've got some of this architecture in place to really improve the way we detect, assess, notify uh, and report on disease outbreaks. 
but, but there are still gaps. There are gaps in the way that we are coordinating some of this work nationally, but also when you think about archipelagic nations like Indonesia, like the Philippines, where there is an unevenness of, of topography, let alone demography, you know, when we're not we're not making this, the connections we need to make from national to subnational to very local in dealing with the issues that a pandemic presents. Um, there are capacity issues in healthcare systems. You know, there, there are issues around access to protective equipment, active access to testing kits, um, good methods for testing and tracing and follow-up. You know, these are really variable across the region. And so I think there's an opportunity to really think about the kind of capacity we need to build in, you know, in terms of building resilience within nations and, of course, building the kind of environment where we can share information, we can report on disease outbreaks and issues openly, transparently, you know, without fear of punitive action coming from that. So I think there are some really specific things to learn out of this pandemic that can offer some direction for our diplomacy and our development um, going forward. Um, I, that, that's my answer to that question. But, Beck, do you want to... Shall we come back to your question on, on the state of, of play for Southeast Asia after this? Or do you want me sure. to do it now? No, we might come back to that because I would like to get um, Chen's uh, views on uh, the lessons that we have learned from the pandemic and maybe uh, whether you can comment, Chen, on whether you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic uh, about um, the, the space uh, that there is for Australia and Southeast Asia to, to kind of deepen relations. Um, I don't know. It's pretty hard to be too optimistic uh, when you're based in Australia and its borders are at the moment permanently closed for the, you know, indefinite foreseeable period. <laughs> uh, but what I can say is that, um, again, take it from Singapore and what it's trying to do, that is eventually when it moves to the next phase of its pandemic management, um, they won't be reporting the number of new cases anymore. And lockdown is not going to be a feature anymore. COVID will just be a pandemic we have to live with, we have to manage, and life should resume, you know, back to normality as much as possible. I mean, sure, we, we, we learn hard lessons from SARS, but this is not SARS. This is on a scale that is way much bigger than SARS, right? Um, and what it does tell you is that the, the countries that the have, the countries that have the um, the resources to dip into um, basically did much better than the countries that are poorer and had a lot of governance and social development issues to deal with. Because when COVID first broke out last year in February, you find that it was the marginalized populations and most of, I can only speak for Southeast Asia, uh, uh, that were really getting you know the worst end of the state when it comes to COVID. So, but these issues really pre-existed, the lack of social protection, lack of justice, et cetera, health systems, and COVID just made it worse for those who are not able to have access to these basic services. So I think, um, I think it's, good in, it's good to put in place systems that you can rely on so that even when the situation changes, you have different variants, much worse than Delta right now, you have a system to rely on and that you're not changing the goalposts every time which, which, which causes confusion in the minds of the public. And I think the mass media being 
uh, mass media being, you know, a channel of public education and providing clear information without politicizing the COVID situation would really help as well in sending the right message to the people to do the right thing. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Caitlin, I'm going to come back to you uh, because our next question relates to uh, vaccine equity and access. Uh, and this is from Ben Rolfe. Is there scope to encourage the Quad to do more on vaccine equity and access almost as a further proof of concept for the Alliance? And if you would like to um, say anything about my uh, or, or respond to my question about uh, relating with ASEAN as an institution, feel free to, to do so now. Okay. Thank you. And thank you, Ben, for the question. Um, you know, I think that we've seen some really interesting discussions amongst quad leaders uh, at, at the behest of President Biden coming in and calling a, a leaders meeting of the quad with COVID-19 very firmly on the agenda and the response, you know, thinking about the response that those four nations might be able to work out together. Um, and they did work out a significant package to see, you know, I think a billion doses delivered across the Indo-Pacific region by 2022. Um, now, I think that that was a positive development for the quad itself. It moved it, you know, it gave it something quite concrete and productive to work towards. But I do wonder, um, you know, I think we're going to have to see how that, act that initiative is delivered on, particularly given India's withdrawal from the export market and, it, and you know, India, India's ability to produce and export vaccines as part of that package was pretty critical. So I don't know that it's necessarily time to push for more from the quad. I think we need to see delivery on what's been agreed. Um, but I think that that, that that was a positive move for quad nations to actually engage in something quite practical and concrete um, beyond, you know, the previous discussions that they'd had, which were very much more around the security landscape. Um, in terms of the issue around the 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 region, I guess I just wanted to comment on the fact that, you know, I think what I'd hate to do is present a picture of Southeast Asia operating in this, this really diverse and um, dynamic environment without having agency in the process. And I think one of the things that has certainly come to the fore is that Southeast Asian nations have asserted their agency in different ways. Um, you know, they, they are working... To, to secure vaccines from a variety of sources. Um, and already we're seeing Pfizer, Moderna, um, Russia's Sputnik V, Sinovac, Sinopharm, uh, AstraZeneca, all being rolled out in different ways. And yes, it's uneven, um, but I think many Southeast Asian nations are really thinking very carefully about how to diversify their access to vaccines. So I think that that's a really um, important point to make. How that plays out though, for regional coherence, particularly within the ASEAN architecture, is really yet to be seen. Um, you know, and I, I, I just wonder if in fact that heightened agency of individual states who are all working to respond to their domestic populations at this crisis time, how that, will translate at a regional level. If anything, I wonder if it exposes the increased opportunity or vulnerability for disaggregation um, at a regional level. So again, I think, you know, if we're thinking about diplomacy, 
opportunities to support that regional coherence will be could be uh, taken up by others, particularly Australia, thinking about how we help ASEAN nations or Southeast Asian nations work together, how we support the mechanisms within ASEAN um, to, to really ensure that regional coherence because those vulnerabilities become vulnerabilities in a whole raft of other areas as well. Now, Huang, I might uh, get you to respond to um, what Caitlin was just saying about, uh, you know, how to create, I guess, or support regional cohesion. But I'm also um, going to uh, give you a question from uh, good friend Hunter Marsden, uh, who's a good friend of Latrobe Asia. Hi, Hunter, who says, thank you to all the speakers for their remarks. This question is to anyone who wants to speak to it, but I am throwing it to you, Huang. Uh, how would you differentiate Australia's Indo-Pacific or Southeast Asia outlook from that of the UK or the US? Are there certain strong points or lessons learned from observing the successes or failures of US policy, for example? Well, the US Indo-Pacific strategy under Biden hopefully will differentiate in some degree from the Trump's uh, era's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, although there are some elements that are supposedly to remain constant um, in it, um, including, you know, um, the competition with China, um, at least rhetorical um, acknowledge to ASEAN centrality, which we yet to be to see um, in practice. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't comment um, exactly yet on the US Indo-Pacific strategy under Biden, uh, because we're still waiting for that to unfold. With Australia's, I think um, the previous phase of the Indo-Pacific strategy and the reception of that uh, in the region has been uh, mixed, to say the least. I think uh, there were mixed feelings about um, the free and open Indo-Pacific under, under Trump. Um, I think there was some resistance to that because of how then Secretary uh, of State Pompeo um, promoted it uh, in a very you know, um, binary way and uh, juxtaposing it really uh, free from, uh, from non-free, free from free meaning, you know, free uh, as, a, you know, differentiated from, from the Chinese Communist Party, that non-free vision of the regional order um, or authoritarian way. Uh, I think Australia is much more careful in, in the way it promotes. It doesn't use in its documents free and open um, in, in a way that US did. Um, but the Southeast Asian um, had been much of a favor of Japanese uh, uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, which is you know a revival of much older one, um, and um, put a lot of emphasis on development, connectivity, and really infrastructure and really practical um, uh, aspects uh, of the Indo-Pacific. Uh, they all are different. Um, I think in a way, to a degree. Um, uh, at least up until you know a um, few years back when uh, Prime Minister Modi gave a speech at Shangri-La, I think the Southeast Asian also were more receptive of that because um, Modi uh, also emphasizes you know uh, Asia as a whole, uh, we're having the whole place in the Indo-Pacific, so not excluding anyone, and namely not excluding China. Um, with uh, I think you know an ASEAN eventually come up with its own outlook on the Indo-Pacific and, and in it, it, it explicitly rejected 
the you know a zero sum great power competitions are really you know explicitly rejecting the american way of presenting it at least and that was under uh, trump i think um right now we, we uh, lost a little bit of momentum in that asian um, you know journey of the indo-pacific obviously because of the COVID that has taken so much uh, attention to it there are of course some conversations within asean what to do next what is the next step whether we implement we have the outlook a document there what's the next step but it's not really the main uh, the first and foremost focus at the moment um, uh, in ASEAN, I think um, it, it will also be, in a way, uh, a response to um, to uh, what's going on, to happen with the respective other Indo-Pacific countries. Your question about the European uh, Indo-Pacific, I think it's also uh, everybody's also adopting a wait and see approach. Uh, obviously, we have um, resident uh, skeptics that uh, already are flagging an issue, what are the, you know, um, ships, uh, European ships doing in the South China Sea and uh, what are their intentions. But really, you know, there is still a lot um, for the Europeans to do in terms of strategic communication with the region. What are their intentions? Obviously, they will be different in the Pacific strategy coming from UK, uh, individual EU countries and the European Union as it, uh, itself will come up with its own also um, in the near future. So I think that, you know, they're still shaping, they're still uh, shaping that in the Pacific strategies. I do notice that, I did notice that they are much more careful and receptive of what Southeast Asian potentially could think. And so there had been a lot of consultation prior to roll out of the Indo-Pacific strategy, just to check what other um, you know, opinions and reception could be. But uh, I think there's a lot of, of strategy communication to be done yet from the European side, uh, just because you know that's, that is a strategy that is going to be other than um, just not rolling out. It's also need to be seen in practice. So that's what we're still waiting for. Next question uh, is for you, Jeff, uh, from Brian Timms. How can RCEP prevent participating countries using economic trade as geostrategic pressure against each other, such as uh, what China has been doing to Australia? Uh, thanks, Ron. The short answer is if someone is committed to doing it, it can't. And indeed, nor, nor can the World Trade Organization. Um, there are um, international mechanisms for arbitration that are quasi-legal to deal with these things, but they t the wheels of justice tend to grind very slowly. So dispute resolution through trade agreements is really designed if there's just been a bit of a a misinterpretation between two parties and often takes three or four years to be resolved, where if you're attempting to use trade as an economic sanction, um, the, the metaphor is that you can shoot first and ask questions and answer the questions in three years' time, usually by which the point's been made. Um, but RCEP does have something to do. And I would also just point out, this is not just a China issue as well. There is a trade war between Japan and Korea at the moment, which a lot of people don't know about, which has a significant um, the diplomatic geoeconomic element to it as well, as well as one, um, a, a WTO case that's just been launched by China, Japan against China last week on the same thing. So this is not just, this is not just a China-Australia or even just a China thing. Um, but the, one of the reasons that RCEP's important is it actually finally gives the Indo-Pacific region centred on Southeast Asia uh, 
a, tra a trading region as a whole. So we now have a single set of trade rules for all of the trade practices and customs and procedures and certificates of origin, a common, a common and agreed set of tariff arrangements. And that's really going to increase the density and the, the ease of trading within the region across borders. For Australia, it's new FTAs with a couple of partners and greatly eased, eased access in others. Um, and what this is going to do is fundamentally get to a situation where you have a more networked region. And if you're a country like Australia or Indonesia uh, or Japan, it, it actually adds that trade diversification agenda that you're going to get, which is going to be one of the, the key things going through um, forward. For any country, you know, in the region, the, you are more exposed to some of these geopolitical wins if you have a lot of eggs in one basket. That basket's often a Chinese basket, though not always a Chinese basket, depending on the country and the commodity. And an integrated EU-like, but not at the same standard as the EU trade bloc, actually lets countries like Australia have genuinely regional trade, uh, trade networks rather than one at the moment, whereas I'm sure we're all aware are heavily China-dominant. So its contribution is to give us is, is to is to allow diversification in that sense, um, and of course justice in four years' time when we do have a Barney. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, I'm going to turn the next question uh, over to Chen Chen. I mean, you mentioned uh, people to people links just briefly in your presentation, uh, but this question comes from. Uh, Cameron from the ASEAN Australia Strategic Youth Partnership uh, and he says that he's been uh, reading Chessboard and the Web by Anne-Marie Slaughter which espouses an IR worldview based on network theory focused on the importance of networks between people and organisations. So what I sort of just described as people-to-people -people, uh, links. Uh, so in your view, does Australia's foreign policy in Southeast Asia uh, overemphasise power politics while undervaluing the importance of embedding ourselves in informal networks? In Myanmar, for example, would Australia benefit from leveraging more non-state engagement? Uh, to influence networks of activists rather than focusing on government or state-based tools like sanctions? That's a pretty big question, but um, I'm sure that you have something interest to, uh, interesting to contribute, Chen. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, <laughs> and I think it really depends on, uh, it also depends on which country you're talking about as well. I think, um, and um, Australia's relations with ASEAN at the end of the day with the regional organizations as a whole, I think it's pretty strong. I think Australia's ambassador to ASEAN who's based in Jakarta has always played a very active role uh, diplomatically. And, and that is shored up by the development assistance that Australia has been providing to the region, not just through the AEDCP2, which stands for Australia ASEAN Development Cooperation Program, but also a whole raft of other programs in the area of counter-trafficking, a free trade agreement, uh, 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 and a new program, I think, on transnational crime in the Mekong region. But at the individual um, member state, and usually that, that is sort of where it matters the most, you know, Australia's soft power or diplomatic influence is how active the embassy has been in reaching out to both state and non-state actors. And that's where Cameron's question of networks is important. I'm not sure what the state of play is and is in Myanmar, but I can tell you at least in Singapore where I was at before I moved to Melbourne, um, Australia embassy in Singapore was very quiet 
Um, there is not a lot of um, network networking activities that has been organized by the embassy for outreach uh, to the non-government sector, to scholars, and even at events organized by other embassies, you usually you're hard-pressed to find an Australian diplomat there. So I think I would, <laughs> you know, I'll end it at there. Obviously, these, you know, um, community networks, it's highly important. Um, and, um, and yes, it, it's a big part of the diplomatic toolkit, I would say. We do have a couple of uh, articles in the policy brief that have been that were written by our colleagues at the Asia Centre uh, that really make this point very explicit, Cameron, about the importance of people-to-people uh, -people relations and the importance of sort of non-state networks. Uh, so you might be interested in reading, reading those pieces, and particularly uh, in relation to um, sort of supporting, I guess, um, civil liberties and rights uh, within Southeast Asian countries. Uh, but our next uh, question, I'm going to uh, come back to Huang. Uh, this is from Melissa Conley-Tyler, another good friend uh, of ours. Uh, how much might Australia's relations with China be a factor in Australia-Southeast Asia relations going forward, um, thinking about the advice that Prime Minister Lee provided to Scott Morrison during his recent visit to Singapore? Yes, I, I saw um, that uh, I was following that visit and following um, the comments that both prime ministers made as well. Um, I think in, in my general, when I give presentations in um, different defence colleges and um, uh, different uh, Australian public service and uh, other trainings, I always say that, you know, because the first uh, uh, a lot of times I get a question how Australia is being seen in Southeast Asia is one of the kind of constant questions I get. And uh, in my presentation, I always, you know, I structure the presentation and, and I, one, one key factor is how Australia's China relation is looking at us. So that's also an aspect that certain regional countries will, um, will affect their views of, of Australia. And I think we've seen that um, reflected in uh, in a number of comments from uh, colleagues in the in the region, not only uh, the comments that you quoted of Prime Minister Lee, but also colleagues in the region from Indonesia and Malaysia saying um, that you know it looks like from they where they stand as if you know there's nothing that China can do that Australia would approve or nothing is good, uh, um, and then there's uh, their situation is is so tense going just a spiral downwards. And I think the ability to manage or lack of ability to manage that relationship is also um, contributing to Australia's uh, you know, um, perception of Australia in the region. Uh, but having said that, I would say also that the perception of Australia in the region uh, it really depends on which country. Um, you are asking, I don't think that is necessarily a view uh, I, that I quoted from Indonesia or, or Malaysia wouldn't be necessarily a view in Vietnam, for example. I think uh, the Vietnamese uh, value Australia's principled and, you know, approach and uh, withholding to the international law and uh, uh, willingness to stand up in the maritime issues. So I think that's actually well received. Uh, countries who have uh, gone through uh, 
cases and examples of Chinese coercion, I think they can empathize and relate to and, and I certainly understand. I think uh, the fact that Australia um, accepts the fallout um, and it is a conscious decision and follows through, it's, it's also in a way respectful for many. Um, it is not a situation that many of Southeast Asian countries would find, would want to find themselves in, but certainly uh, not completely uh, foreign to them, uh, especially for those that I said have also experienced similar uh, coercive uh, practice from China. So it's a very varied, um, varied um, mixed picture. I think one key difference is that it's um, between Southeast Asia and Australia is that I think most of Southeast Asian envy Australia, the geography, something that I can't afford. Um, again, you know, geographic natural predisposition is Australia's strongest asset in this, uh, in this uh, context. So this is a lot of things that maybe even some of them would ponder or would want to try, but probably can't afford that easily given the geographic and of course others, other aspects of, you know, being security assurance that they also don't have similar to the one that Australia has. Uh, I might just get uh, Chen, if you can shed um, some light on uh, Prime Minister Lee's comments to uh, Scott Morrison. Thanks, Beck, and thanks, Melissa, for the question. I hope Taipei is treating you well, presuming that's where you are right now. So I just want to quote Lee Sin Long on one of the things that he said to Scott Morrison, which is, deal with China as issues in the partnership you want to keep going and not issues which add up to uh, adversity. Um, and I think that's really the view of Singapore and many Southeast Asian nations when it comes to China. Um, that Australia's current anti-China policy is a bit of a concern for several Southeast Asian nations, simply because China is a major economic power and creditor and trade partner in Southeast Asia, and the region's economic recovery cannot occur without China being a huge part of it. And that's a huge reality for ASEAN countries. Southeast Asia has a contiguous relationship with China. It is a reality on our doorstep. And Prime Minister Lee is right when he said that we have to work with it. We can't, uh, you know, we can't just cast it aside. And that's not to say that, you know, China is highly trusted within ASEAN as well. We've got to make that distinction. In fact, I think um, in the last uh, Institute of Southeast Asian um, survey, which was just released this year, there's a high level of distrust of China and its political intentions or geo-economic intentions too in ASEAN region. And this is, has not gone unnoticed by a lot of ASEAN leaders as well. And it's also evident in a way in which certain projects have been canceled or put on hold, like the Minson Dam in Myanmar, and also, um, and also cancellation of server infrastructure projects in Indonesia, and also some uh, Mekong rapids blasting projects by the Thai government as well, which was seen as a win by the civil society because they were so concerned about the environmental damage that will be inflicted on the Mekong River. Um, and then on the issue of Sinovac, um, Indonesia is obviously receiving a lot of vaccine from China, not because it wants to, because China is the only country that can produce the quantity that Indonesia needs. So it's in this, so as I said, um, you know, um, Southeast Asian countries have to hedge against US-China in this regard, and, and China is always going to be there. And therefore, in that context, Lee Sin Long was just being extremely pragmatic in the way in which 
you know, he, he sees China and treats the relationship. Jeff, do you have anything to add to this discussion? Thanks. And, and look, I agree with a, a lot of the comments there, actually. Like, it's very interesting the way that these Lee Fen Boon comments were reported in Australia and that they were said, Singapore and Prime Minister gives Australia a lesson in how to deal with China, which, which, which I think uh, kind of reflected some Australian fears and that because if you kind of look at it, there's another way to read that comment, which is, you have to live with China, right? Like it, it, it's in a way, in a way, the comment itself recognises a lot of the fundamental issues that are at play, that are at play there. And and Australia, I think it's right. A lot of Southeast Asian countries would be envious of Australia. We don't have maritime disputes in the South China Sea that are actually affecting. Yeah, there's a slox issue. Obviously, if the sea gets closed, it's a nightmare for the whole world. But we, you know, we don't have territorial stakes in question. Economically, Australia doesn't depend on Chinese investment, and we have this giant mining industry that can't get sanctioned because Chinese industry needs it. So that's that's ring fenced from geopolitics because of the the brute reality of China's industrial economic needs. Um, I think it's pretty unsurprising, therefore, that Singapore, and Singapore's a city-state, right? Like, it's completely unsurprising that Singapore would be in a different position. And I, I, I think it's very strange that the way commentators, certainly in Australia, and I understand it sometimes in it. It really does reflect, and for us as Australians, the the, the unblessed, in some respects, strategic position that Australia is in on on some of these issues. And so, it wouldn't I wouldn't see that as evidence of a a break or a rift in the way that some of the more you know red blood you know sanguine analysis has tried to offer it. Now, last word uh, will go to Caitlin. Uh, you might have something to contribute to the discussion, but I'm also going to throw you one last question um, from our audience, from Russell Darnley. This is one that I know is close to both of our hearts, and that is about the decline of languages uh, in Australia and how that might affect our diplomatic and engagement capabilities in the future. Thanks, Beck. Um, can I also just make a well, quick qualifier? I've realised my 16-year-old son has just fired up his electric guitar in the room next door. If it starts, I'm sorry, I texted him, but he may not realise. Um, just adds to the entertainment, Caitlin. It can be the, the band that ends the webinar. You heard it here first. Um, look, Russell, thank you. And I, I did read your comment with real interest, given you are someone who's living in Indonesia. You've been watching this space, and, you know, for many years. Um, and, and I think your comment is, is absolutely spot on. You know, we've seen a real decline in language studies over the past several decades, but in particular over the last 12 months. And yet never has there been a more compelling time for us to be skilling up, for us to be thinking about, you know, the range of capabilities that we're going to be needing, language, intercultural, but also technological, to navigate what is going to be a volatile, complex, really ambiguous uh, future across the Asia-Pacific region. Um, and, and the fact that we're seeing that decline in Indonesian language studies, I think, is, is you know, really con concerning. Um, this has been a debate that has been taking place in Australia on a kind of cyclical basis for several decades. In fact, you can go back to 1913 to see some of those early debates emerging about Australia skilling itself up 
to engage with the region around it. Um, it, I was involved with uh, some work done by the Australia Task Force, uh, an Asia Link, um, Asia Society, Asia Link was also involved, um, BCA, Business Councils of Australia project, to actually look at some of these issues. And, you know, whilst it's great to see programs like the New Colombo Plan continue and have committed funding, at least for now, that is not enough. Uh, and we do have to see greater investment in specialised skills, including in language, in our universities, you know, but we're not seeing that. So I think there are some real issues at play here um, that, that just undermine our ability going forward to engage with our region. Um, I might leave it at that, I, you know, certainly not Indonesia. I think we've got to think of ourselves and think of the trans-regional uh, capabilities we are going to need. So we really need this to, you know, the rite of passage needs to be much more than simply a couple of weeks in uh, studying in country. It needs to have much greater depth and it needs to be about our longer term relationships with people, with institutions and at a national level right across Southeast Asia. There's a lot of work to be done here. Indeed. Uh, well, I'm afraid that is uh, all we have time for. But I would like to thank all of our panellists and thank our audience for watching this uh, La Trobe Asia event, which of course is brought to you in collaboration uh, with our great partners who have been involved uh, in this partnership. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to read our policy brief, uh, do check the website. Thanks uh, once again to our panellists and our audience. It's been a really uh, terrific discussion.